On the 26th of September, I'm launching a new podcast called The Family Tree. Remember that once you put it out there, you lose control over it. You have no control over it after that. It's done. It's out in the world. <laughs> Deleting doesn't always work. Once it's up, it's it's there. I found it quite difficult because I really had no idea how to make The Illusionist, even though I'd been podcasting for a long time. I'd never been the solo presenter of a show, so I had to figure out a way to talk and monologue in a way that sounded like I was in conversation because I prefer conversing with people than monologuing. I have to fall on the side of letting people share what they believe is ultimately a healthy exercise. And when they feel like they're seen and listened to and appreciated, then you have the beginning of conversation. We've all got to start communicating on a deeper level in order to evolve culturally to get to the next level of being human, we've got to start digging into ourselves a little bit more. The generations of people that are coming through now, are, they're going to have their entire lives fossilized on the internet for better or for worse. And I think that probably it's good to pause and think about what you are calcifying <laughs> online. That interpretation of the events that I might have had could be different when other people hear it, which sort of loosens my grip on what it meant and somehow can actually introduce another way of interpreting it, which sometimes can be lighter and just a lot more helpful maybe than the original. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. Before we had this conversation, my guest had listened to my solo show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. So a lot of what we talk about in this episode is framed around that. You can find that show and the survey I made of a thousand anonymous men's thoughts about patriarchy at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. This conversation talks about masculinity and lots of other things, uh, and it briefly touches on sexual assault, but not particularly in detail, but it does touch on that topic. It was recorded in a public space, and so there will be a little bit of background sound to navigate, but persevere because I think it's a really interesting conversation. It's also a conversation conducted by two people who were feeling out their ideas around what they were talking about. It would be great if you could listen to it with that in mind, rather than than thinking that we have definitely decided on any of the things we're saying or that the words we're using are the right words that we would finally choose if we weren't stumbling around for ways to describe what we're talking about. So it's some people working out what they think about themselves and the world together in a cafe. Well, that's, that's always the danger of uh, if you... We've rehearsed, to a certain extent, some of, some of this conversation as well. So who knows, maybe it will seem less authentic and... Uh, but that's uh, that's always the catch twenty two, right? You meet up with someone, uh, and you're like, particularly with you, right? Because we've never met. No. We could have gone in completely blind, and that would have been interesting. And then have got a conversation like the one we just had, where we're kind of feeling each other out, getting to know each other. But then now we know each other a bit better, so we've got more rapport. So maybe that will be better. Who knows? Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. So 
today we're getting better acquainted with Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> really weird uh, to go into the opening of the show after literally just talking to you and acknowledging you were there already. And it never stops being weird, that. Yeah, I mean, I've actually folded my arms, which obviously people can't see on the podcast, but I've already sort of, like, on... <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. We're on microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It never gets less awkward, but I kind of like awkward, so I, I, I kind of thrive on that, I guess. I think it'll probably make me a bit more careful than what I say, hopefully. <laughs> a bit more considered. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. But we're recording this conversation in a cafe slash bar, uh, the London Peculiar, is it called? London Particular. Particular. The London Particular bar in New Cross. Ooh. Got some music going on behind us for background sound fans hopefully not loud enough to get me done for copyright infringement uh, but let's hope that when we talk uh, our conversation will be uh, change the sound files enough that, that Spotify won't kind of whack it out and cancel me forever That's the, I live in fear of that now because they've got new software and kind of new management at, 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 at uh, SoundCloud. I might have said Spotify, but I meant SoundCloud. Hopefully this won't be the one that destroys uh, my feed forever. I think that'd be good given that I work in the music industry. To be the one that sort of ends up getting it all pulled would be quite funny. Right, <laughs> absolutely. Interesting loud motorbikes uh, outside too. So it's going to be a, a background sound. Fans are going to love it. Thanks very much. <laughs> For listeners, we're getting some Earl Grey tea. <laughs> Thanks, Ivan. Because we're middle class in English, or well, British, probably. What do you identify as? <laughs> I, I, I identify as British uh, because I've lived in Wales and England and don't like national countries. And so. I would agree. I think. Um, National pride is probably my least favourite thing, and then second on that list is football. So when things right. like the World Cup or the Euros are on, it's, I literally have to like pull the covers over and just try to forget the planet for about two weeks. Me too. Although I kind of like it when you know Wales beats England, but for that's for completely non-football related reasons. And in terms of like the nationalism of that, it's a funny one. Like I have more time for Welsh nationalism than I do for English nationalism because they come from completely different angles. Um, do you think because it's also maybe seen as a slight minority within well, the... Well, it, it is a minority. The Welsh are a minority group within the UK. They're not a minority group that suffers from many things. They're still white. There's still, you know, lots of other things that give them privilege. But the Welsh are a minority group and they were colonised by the English, same as the Scottish were. So it, it comes from a different route. And Welsh nationalism... It's an interesting one. Like, what I like about it is it involves men being unashamed to cry. Maybe English nationalism involves that too. I don't know. I don't hang around with many kind of racists. Uh, but but if they're, <laughs> yeah, that's if they're the only, that's the only nationalism, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. No, but it's the, actually my kind of the reason why I literally run the other way from it is because you know, especially that English nationalism, what the English flag, like what the English flag means. So people who kind of were around in the early 80s and stuff right. as like a symbol, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's very scary. And although, you know, obviously language, symbols, all these things do progress and get reappropriated and all this kind of stuff, I think actually it still holds such a, you know, significant... Same way that the SWAT sticker is never going to be, you know, a friendly logo, is it? It's yeah. like, you know, even though it was appropriated originally by the Nazi right. party, but it's like it's kind of stuck in its sort of sphere yeah. now, isn't it? Some things are permanently damaged, and I, I, I would say that the the English flag is one of those symbols I, it, that is kind of permanently damaged. 
but also, I mean, its origin was damaged. It started in a damaged way anyway. Like the the other part of the how do I define is I define as British, and for many years I've I've met people saying you should call yourself English or whatever, and that always pisses me off. But defining as British does not mean I I, I I'm proud to be British either. The, the the British flag is also a colonial racist flag to me, yeah. and so I'd rather not define as anything uh, in terms of national boundaries. I'm all for defining as cisgender or straight or white or all of these things that give me structural power and so maybe I should uh, also have to define as British to show my structural power that comes with that I don't but know I think, the, I think the, it's a different thing yeah it just it just gets very scary if people start defining themselves on the rock that they're essentially born onto you know right. I think you know there's obviously I think yeah society and everything else that you're born into is much more kind of poignant I guess and more I guess important terms of defining oneself I think and maybe yeah which rock you are given that the boundaries do move you know yeah we were having this conversation in broken Soviet like Soviet states or former Yugoslavia you know it'd be like you know, very different that's very true although it's a continuum as well which is an interesting thing like I mean I, I had a conversation recently with somebody who was who is, is working in Russia and so obviously their view of the UK was that we're very progressive and we're not, unlike Russia, we're not like attacking gay people to the same extreme, we're not as misogynistic, so there's all of this kind of temptation to say the UK's got it right, but it was interesting to me that he was saying this having not been in the country for quite a while, just before the Brexit kind of vote properly proved, I feel like. But we we can't really say we're not like Russia. We we are on that continuum, and that is a very scary thing, I think, from, from my point of view. <laughs> Would agree. Yeah, I hope this this podcast doesn't get used against us in ten years' time. Uh, that's how scary the world is now, right? Both be thrown into a hole forever for even having a conversation about it ten years ago. Yes. So the first question I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Um, so through Joe Bennett, I guess I can say his full name. Yeah. He's obviously someone that I guess you met through podcasting and the like, or I don't know. I don't know. How do you know Joe Bennett? That's always interesting. Well, Joe Barrett. I think. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah, Joe yeah, Bennett yeah. is uh, another friend of mine. No, that's fine. Um, I, I know I know Joe, who is a podcaster who makes what's it called? This it's about smell, life and sense. Life in sense. It's such a good title. How can I forget it? So he makes that podcast, and I make this podcast. And we were brought together by Pod Academy, who were looking for some people to help deliver podcast training. So we kind of met each other delivering a podcast training course. And a little bit before that, like to have a meeting about how we were going to do it. We got on, we listened to each other's stuff, we enjoyed it. I had Joe on this show. Joe's gone on to make other podcasts as well. Since then, like Farmerama, I think he's currently yeah, making. Yeah, farming, yeah. Yeah, and he, he was involved with the Tech for Good podcast as well. Yeah, he's 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 a freelance podcaster who's actually making it work, I think, financially and personally, whereas I'm still struggling. But uh, nevertheless, I don't, don't have any jealousy towards him, just admiration. He's definitely much more of a, a person who can make good audio, well-produced audio, whereas my strength is more in capturing moments... And okay. kind of mine is kind of yeah about the live moment to a certain extent. Even though I do edit, as as we were talking about off mic before we started. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know not to judge you because obviously we've just met, but what I would definitely define Joe as is a fantastic listener. Oh, and he I is think that too. Actually, probably one of the things I hold in highest regard on people is if they can listen, yeah. which is actually a skill that a, not a lot of us. Well, we, I think we all have it in us, but not necessarily 
exercise very, very well. You know, I think actually a lot of things aren't, no one really properly listens to each other. The internet's a very good example of essentially just like everyone just screaming. Joe and I met because through a mutual friend who was obviously doing the podcast stuff and because he's just such a good listener, he ends up, he brought a lot out of me and started to help me form ideas around what I wanted to do with the ideas that I have just because he's just a very good soundboard, you know, as in we'd sort of take things in and that's just very, I don't know, alluring for me just to talk to, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he is a good listener and I don't mean to suggest that he doesn't have excellent content. Um, yeah, he no, but I think you know, it's, almost, it's a way of almost getting good content out, isn't it? If you can just if you put yourself in a position of almost kind of like so peaceful, yeah, that everything can kind of like kind of come out of the woodwork and kind of you know. Right, he and yeah, I mean, I I try to be a good listener, and in a way, this this podcast is about me trying to learn to be a better listener. But definitely, yeah, he's a he's an excellent listener. Whereas I have to really work at it. Yeah, me um, too. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, it's a it's a skill I hold highly, but I'm very bad at practice. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, I mean that it's a funny thing. I think I mean because we're going to get into this as we go through because we, it's it's part of the topics we we discussed talking about. But I mean it's a funny thing because I think like as men we're sort of like taught to not be good listeners, whereas often women are taught to be good listeners. And there's kind of a problem with becoming such a good listener that you can't assert yourself, uh, which is what kind of a lot of women have struggle with. Uh, and then, uh, but there's also a big problem with becoming such a good talker, uh, or not even a good talker, because we don't have to be good at it to be able to do it all the time, right? And that's a, a, a definitely an interesting thing in terms of, you know, mediocre men uh, get very successful. We're trained to be talkers, but we're not trained to listen, and we're not also trained to question our our statements very much. I think as men, yeah, I think it's middle just, class men. I think just interrogate. Like we're just not right. trained to interrogate anything. I think there's right. so many kind of things we're just led and supposed to assume right and I think that's kind of I think that's where most sort of problems come into it I think obviously feminism is a very interesting one where the problem with it is is that men feel like there's something being taken away from them in this kind of real like kind of realignment or you know this kind of balance and like kind of whole equality thing which is so flawed because actually the way it's going to really work and the way it becomes exciting for everyone is if all genders and everybody sees it as a time to be incredibly progressive and read like everything should be up for grabs for everyone does that make sense yeah no absolutely you know I think which is kind of where I've got to with it all and like kind of especially things when like you know how I would identify my own sexuality like my own preferences like all this kind of stuff I think actually if you see it as like a chance to really just explore everything because the gloves should be off for everyone right and actually it feels like nothing's being lost but actually everything's to be gained and actually like it's just if we could all do that and all move forward at like a kind of similar pace with it, not in like a land grabby way, but just like, I don't know, it could be quite exciting. Well, yeah, and it's interesting. The reason that men feel like something's been taken from us is because we've been taught that we should have everything to a certain extent. We've been taught we are entitled to these things. Yeah, entitlement's and, a very good word for it, yeah. And then the, the, but then the other side of it is we don't notice what we're missing from being pushed into that box. Like the ways that, like, increasingly I've come to think... You know, obviously the men's rights uh, activist kind of thing is wrong for many, 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 many reasons. But one of the biggest reasons I think it's wrong is that men don't need rights. There's a couple of areas where we don't have equal rights. I'm not denying that they exist. We don't have equal rights to looking after children. We don't have an equal right to that, um, generally. And we don't have an equal right in sexual assault rape terms. We're, like it, it, In UK law, and you'll, you'll, you'll have heard this in my show, but 
for the listeners at home, in UK law, a man can't be uh, raped by a woman. Uh, they can only be sexually assaulted by a woman because penetration is seen as the only form of legal rape. Um, that's the only areas that I can think of that men don't have equal rights in. And in both those areas, men are more likely to be dicks as well. Like, m- men are more likely to rape someone anyway. Uh, but they're also more likely to, to not look after their kids and not, not pay for their kids because they're, they're not taught that that matters as much. And that's changing and that's great that it's changing, but it's, it's not changed yet. And I say that as, ha- as someone who was lucky enough to have a dad who was act- actively involved in my childcare and was, 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 was very much not the model of masculinity that you see. I see, because I had the um, opposite, although I'd say my dad sort of definitely represents um, like a sort of certain area and form of masculinity. But I think essentially someone who was kind of actually crushed by it at the same time as, you right. know, could, again, could never really think outside of it. But, you know, his dad was very, t- like, tough on him. He went to a very tough school, you know, like, all these kind of things. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like my stepdad. Okay. So I had, I had both. Oh, nice, an uh, equal option. balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I definitely had the, yeah, a, a positive model of masculinity and a terrible model of masculinity. I mean, maybe that's good. Maybe that gives me balance as a, as a as an adult. But I could have done without the terrible model of masculinity. I think. Yeah, it was quite difficult. He actually, because um, my parents weren't together when I was born. They were in fact separate. Right. And then it's actually still a very grey area. I don't really know what fully went on. And actually, I've always played the sort of pacifier within like the family, and like kind of never. It's just too painful for them to start talking about it, and I don't feel there's any real like ground for me to gain or understanding by going into it with them I think it still probably hurts slightly and obviously you know two sides to every argument it's difficult to get both of them kind of at, at equal like kind of you know volume I guess yeah but um yeah they eventually got together I think when about a year old married when I was five or so and then were divorced by I think I was like seven or eight so it was like a very short normal family life which obviously didn't really you know divorce obviously comes as an extreme so before that there was obviously a lot of like kind of problems with it yeah and then he moved abroad when I was 10 so very had like very little sort of like kind of adult role models in my upbringing and started to I think my mum got very worried about it um, and as a result like my dad and her agreed to sort of ship me off to a private school and like a boarding school because they were where I was growing up, which was near Basingstoke in Hampshire, like it's quite a sort of industrial town. There wasn't particularly any positive male role models to be found, you know. And it was like it's kind of a lot of not gang culture, but just like kind of youths up to no good is normally what the area is good for, you know. So yeah, that was my first, and even all the school, like junior school and everything, I went to state schools. There was there was only one male teacher that which I didn't have, you know. It was all women, right. It's definitely, I mean, so that's the interesting thing. Like, for me, I think it's not about rights, generally speaking, it's about liberation, mm. right? And, like, when we talk about, like, where, where men are held, held back in society, it's always because of the box we're in rather than the opportunity to step out of that box. So, in terms of groups that can achieve liberation for ourselves, we're the closest to it as we have the most social power. And yet, we're, we're really conditioned not to step out of that box so we don't take that tiny step towards liberation that we could 
potentially have and I mean and that's why you know that's part of the reason why we don't have as many men teachers uh, as we do have women teachers because you know caring that kind of role of like uh, yeah certainly in primary schools you don't as well it's an interesting thing it's like secondary schools there's much more I think there's more male teachers in secondary schools because there's more position to be authoritarian and uh, yeah, macho in, in a secondary school than there is in a primary school yeah isn't it I think it's very much that you put yeah I guess in primary school because it's obviously so important how you are with you know as a group kind of like it's like trying to herd it I guess and not put too much of an imprint on it the same way that you know like kind of grabbing a baby's head as it's trying to come out of a <laughs> being born can shape its skull you know? right. so you kind of have, you don't want to leave too much of an impression do you but kind of start putting up the boundaries of what we would confine as like being good or bad within our society you know and like I don't know keeping a very loose handle on it I guess rather than doing the big fish small fish cardboard right. box thing and <laughs> but yeah I know I've lost my train of thought well I mean primary school is an interesting thing yeah it, it's it's definitely a kind of safer environment than secondary school I've found but I, I, I still think that with we're teaching these kind of messages to kids so early. I used to work with early years, like under fives. Uh, and again, that's an area that not very many men work in, which means as a man that people will totally let you off being a bit slack because of the fact that you're a man. Like, I'm not saying I was slack, but I had many, many opportunities where my privilege of being a man in that situation could have meant I took the piss. And did I didn't, generally speaking, although it's quite hard to fight against. I've worked in quite a lot of mostly women uh, workplaces and in those workplaces it's it's quite hard to fight off everybody's urge to mother you especially if you're a young man and all of the kind of opportunities that gives you to, to not pull your weight in a team and I'm not saying that I always managed to resist that because I'm still a human being that doesn't want to I'd like to be lazy but I'd also like to be lazy without pressing a, another group of people so it's it's a complicated one, particularly because, you know, I think people forget sometimes when we talk about feminism, and I, I say this in full knowledge that I'm a man talking about feminism, and so not to be listened to the most anyway, that a lot of women do enforce uh, patriarchy the same as men, and there are lots of women out there... Yeah, I think we're Theresa May, you know, obviously this indeed, week. Indeed, right. a very good example of that. And, yeah, I mean, when I look at my... I mean, you, you've heard my, my show about masculinity, and when I look at, like, ways that I've been hurt by patriarchy, a lot of the people, the instigators of that, that pain, have been women. Uh, it would be a mistake to then blame all women as a result of that, obviously. And I think, sadly, some people in the kind of disenfranchised, entitled male communities have had bad experiences with women and, and then they've come to the conclusion that women are to blame. Same way my mum came to the conclusion that men were to blame because of her bad experiences. So it's a, it's a complicated one. And I, I, at the same time as I think men shouldn't be the, the leading voices of feminism, everyone needs to be held to account for patriarchy or we can't get rid of it, I think. So, yeah, but I'd prefer to work towards trying to get men to liberate ourselves rather than tell women how to do it. I totally agree. I mean, you know, obviously, just mentioned that sort of uh, like patriarchy, and then obviously, we talked about it earlier, but hierarchy, obviously, this term that I'd only heard through listening to your show. Um, where do you sort of do you think that do you see that as like a kind of more umbrella sort of term and sort of setup or system and which patriarchy is a part of? Or? Yeah, that. okay. So, I mean, so yeah, so Kiriaki, for listeners, uh, was coined by, I won't get her name right, but it's Elizabeth Shusler, 
for, I don't know, I can't remember her name, but she coined the phrase Kiriaki to describe the various different intersecting systems of oppression. A kind of, it's a collective noun for systems of oppression, as I say in my show. So, you know, a flock of sheep, a Kiriaki of oppressions. It's the kind of shorthand of the way I think of it. But I definitely think, yeah, like growing up, the thing I was most aware of was capitalism and the, the things that I and racism and uh, as I kind of became aware that patriarchy was still a going concern because being brought up by people who were feminist leaning uh, it's easy to sort of be in a little bubble to think oh yeah that's a bad thing from the past but definitely like capitalism I'm not saying it's the worst of the systems but it's the one that that is really fundamental in preserving all of the systems, I think. Like, it uses patriarchy to make money and it uses racism to make money. And so, in a way, until we get rid of capitalism, it's very hard to get rid of some of those other systems because capitalism will fight to protect racism and sexism, you know. Oh, I totally agree. It's also, because um, obviously within that, finance is like a kind of main kind of area of it and technology within its sort of relation of, because we were discussing earlier how, you know, tech and disruptors are essentially replacing and shifting industries but replacing them with the same types of people that already run industries you know sort of right. white cis men essentially but the idea, it's interesting that technology which obviously within that comes the internet and stuff which we obviously discussed earlier as well being this sort of could have been a force for good or for bad you know at the beginning it kind of felt like it was a total free for all and it yeah. feels like it's slowly being you know driven to essentially secure the systems that are already in place rather than liberate right but um there's yeah, a really interesting kind of think piece on the idea that you know finance hasn't taken technology in technology's enveloped finance you know it's become not only the kind of like medium of the economy for example you know bitcoin you know it's now technology is now what we can trade in right not just well, you know bitcoin bitcoin apparently is doing better than the pound at the moment so uh yeah i, I mean that's definitely one of those like, things you always kick yourself on you're like i should have just bought some when they first came <laughs> around you know just a couple like you know you're yeah. just such a good bank <laughs> yeah i mean i know a few people who are kind of very in favor of bitcoin i mean i don't know I don't know if, 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 if something that replicates the way that capitalism operates can really be an answer to capitalism. The same way as, as all of these things, like when feminism replicates oppressive thinking, then it becomes part of the problem too. And we see that in kind of transphobic, trans-excludary, fem- exclusionary feminism and like sex worker exclusionary feminism and, and, and kind of white feminism as, they, as, as it's coined, which means more than just white people so those, so it's really easy for these things we think are radical to then become uh, co-opted by these systems because there's so many of those systems I think because because it isn't just one but it can get co-opted in so many different directions but that's it do you, I mean it's trying to weigh up like what of that is deliberate and what of that is kind of almost accidental well, through is, just you know yeah. again just through just how we're all programmed you know that's the eternal question my instinct is that my instinct is I don't that rather than it being a massive conspiracy theory, that what it is is just messy human beings being messy. I used to think about capitalism this way. Uh, now I might 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 replace capitalism with the, the, with the term kiriarchy, but uh, it's kind of like a computer system that's been written, and it kind of replicates itself now. Nobody's consciously doing it anymore. Some people are, but most people are just living their lives, and just their lives happen to replicate this system onto the next generation or whatever. 
Yeah, it's definitely that kind of. It's that. Is it? Um, it's a very dystopian idea, but it's almost like the computer can be wrong, but as a result, the humans around the computer end up just going, "Well, well the computer said that now, so we'll just run with that idea." Yeah. Like my friend had it. Uh, an American I know trying to come into the UK, getting stopped at the border because he had a laptop, a keyboard, and a saxophone with him because he's a musician. And they started just sort of prying him, just trying to find out if he was working or not. Which he's not a full-time musician. He doesn't even. Make, he's never made any money from music. He's actually a, works in real estate. But he was coming over to you know jam with his friends because obviously that's his network of people who he's met through the internet or other musicians. And they kind of just started like kind of manipulating the conversation at the border the point where it kind of made it sound like they basically managed to him to get to confess to working doing you know music so obviously he need a like actual like a completely different visa to just a tourist one and just send him back Fuck. i mean he was you know there's other things that come into it uh, he's a you know a black guy he's also um muslim you know there's like a, there's a load of other things you could start applying oh, yeah. to it but it just was so strange because he got back to america obviously went into you know just like went into the embassy to discuss the situation and you know the guy was incredibly sympathetic you know said that obviously been a mistake and all this kind of stuff and then just tried to get him to sign up for a work visa and how he'd go about doing it and it was like no the computer's wrong like now with the, you know it's like you need to just change what it says in the system rather than we all need to change and I then need to get a work visa because there's no way I'm not doing any work so there's nothing I can do to prove it what will then happen is I'll get the work visa, go back there, and have no one who can sponsor me or do anything, and then essentially, like, you know, <laughs> be manipulating a system the same way that everyone does and be turned into, like, you know, a kind of monster. So right. it's like, he's ended up just staying in America now, just stuck. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, that's, and that's exactly it. I mean, I think that, that the mistake that people make is to locate the problem within individuals rather than within systems. Which is not to say that individuals don't have those systems within us. Like, we internalise the systems inside us. That's one of the... When you think about gender, that's one of the most frustrating things is that we've all got what I call the little, the little voice of patriarchy in our head. Like, whatever we're trying to do, it's there, you know? But, like, when we blame individuals rather than systems, it makes it harder to actually solve the problem because the way to solve the problem is to dismantle the system. And if we spend all our time... You know, hating on. I mean, for example, I do think Theresa May is going to be a worse prime minister than we've ever had before. Potentially, I I do think that the, her policy decisions in the past imply that she's going to be a terrible figurehead for a system, but she still is a figurehead for a system. And so, to completely blame her for this is to ignore all of the factors around her that cause her to be what she is. You know, and to to, to sort of like. And she's going to be attacked now, misogynistically, for the next four years. And she's also going to be held up as an example of why feminism isn't needed anymore because we've got a woman as a leader. And it's like, no, if we look at it systematically, the reason that Theresa May is the kind of leader she's going to be is because in order to succeed as a woman within a patriarchal system, you have to be twice as terrible as the men to get to the top. And, you know, it's not about having more women in positions of power as figureheads. It's about having a whole system that has 50% women, 50% men, changing the nature of the board meetings, changing the nature of cabinet meetings. A macho cabinet meeting can be chaired by a, a woman. There's no reason why women can't be as macho as men. They're, that I know quite a lot of macho women and I don't think it's good for them any more than I think it's good for men to be ma I guess I should 
to clarify when I say macho I'm talking about kind of toxic masculinity competitiveness uh, aggression I'm not talking about other factors of masculinity which are fine and everyone can be and all that stuff do you think it comes down to an idea it's like architecture isn't it it's kind of going in and redesigning I think that's the most the most interesting conversations I have with um, friends of mine who are you know identify as you know a feminist or, you know, with that belief is that what they're after is the ability to go in and redesign and change things and a lot of them work in theatre which is a very interesting thing because obviously you have theatres are always designed in the same way apart from when you're in the round occasionally so that's the only real change but it's a very funny thing in that kind of very weird social setup for example like say people with like disabled people who are in wheelchairs always sit at the front you know because always they're tiered so there's no way that a disabled person would be able to sit at the back or in the middle or choose it so their experience is always essentially dominated by the fact of their own ability right and it's like you know well what, how would you change this and then obviously there's you know within art as well it's kind of the relationship between performer and audience is also something that could be potentially like played with but mm. yeah it'd be kind of more interesting thing to see if it was an equal balance not necessarily men and women 50-50 if you had women and other minorities sort of becoming the architects on certain things like systems and even places and all this kind of stuff like what would actually change yeah I mean I'm all for trying a completely woman dominated system uh, because we've had a male dominated system for centuries uh, so we should absolutely uh, I'm, I'm all for seeing if that makes a difference I fear it doesn't I, th- I fear that hierarchically we have to change the fundamental way that that system operates rather than just the people driving it but I think until like female leaders of male systems are, and both male and female in themselves are words that are limited and binary and all sorts of things but that's not changing the system like at all and so it becomes a very yeah like a lot of people are going to kind of see Theresa May as kind of and, and potentially Hillary Clinton and all of these other, other leaders as kind of system change but you know, it's not system change unless you change, like, a significant part of, like, that system. And just culturally as well, I, I think I think it, there's been studies shown that people still think that there's more women than men in a, in a group when there isn't. Like, when there's actually less, still less women than men. If there's a few women, if there's, like, three women in a group, people think, well, there's a lot of women there. And so... That kind of tells us the problem. That the, that's how ridiculous the situation we we are dealing with. You can you can have people in a room, and they can literally think that the people in it are, are different from the ones who are there because of the way we're conditioned. And that's that's where we've got to kind of work from. Which is kind of scary to me. Yeah, it's it's again it's that thing of just that inertia that gets created from having so much thought because you don't really know where to start or where's you know like it's, it's almost like you have to try and figure out a way identify places where radical change can happen first right you know and it's I mean I've been talking about it a lot with um, people that I work with and know and um, I mean we still hold the idea that kind of nightclubs and clubbing is actually can be one of the most progressive spaces if done correctly you know I think there's something incredibly important on the fact of you know kind of that late night experience that kind of room of different people and kind of all doing one act together which is essentially dancing but with no real focus on anyone in the space apart from just like the music and the kind of mass experience that's being created is potentially very potent you know I think you can't really ever think straight if you feel like you're being watched or you can't ever think deeply if you feel like you're being observed you know it's kind of that 
if you're conscious of who you, where you are and who you are and people, like, conscious of other people noticing you, then actually you become self-conscious. Everyone does, you know, even if you're the most confident person, you know, you're aware of it. So I think trying to then, it kind of limits the amount of thought and interesting kind of free thinking that can happen. Whereas if you then go, oh, all right, well, if that's an idea, well, kind of nightclubs are great for that because it's dark, you know, the focus is never on one individual person. You know, is this actually a place where you could start to have really interesting and radical thought come out of it if you approach it right? And because it's got, you know, an entry and an exit and there's confines and it's four walls, you can start to actually kind of orchestrate and sort of manipulate the room around people, potentially to make it very open. So, you know, like the way door policies used to work in, like, well, work in Berlin, for example, where they're very conscious of making sure there's like a kind of equal spread of people, you know, like firstly male and female, not for commercial purposes like we do in the UK when you, you know, women go in for free or whatever, right. but also, you know, people who represent different sexualities and things. And there's a few clubs in London that do it well, and they're really exciting spaces because when there's no over- overriding majority on a dance floor, it becomes really interesting because everyone relaxes and everyone just really starts to express themselves in ways, you know, because obviously dance is the most, one of the most expressive things you can do as a human Absolutely. physically it becomes really just a really interesting spot and it's an interesting thing as well when like thinking about men's liberation it's like I don't know you you might feel similarly to this as you as someone who doesn't like football uh, I mean I find being in big groups of just men very uh, difficult completely and like I find it I don't feel safe I don't feel all these things which I know that women feel worse than I do in those kind of situations potentially because there's there's more bad bad experiences that they may have had with groups of men than maybe me but I've had quite a few uh, bad experiences of groups of men and like for me to feel comfortable and unwatched would need to have a, a gender balance in the room so to, to, that, that gender balance isn't just liberating for women it's potentially liberating for men but although, of course, it's also really liberating for women to be in women-only spaces and, you know, for black people to be in black-only spaces or whatever because of the fact that they're so rare and they have to, to kind of police their own behaviour so much in, in life, whereas we don't have the same thing with male-only spaces, I feel like. But that sometimes can happen when you create a male-only space which is liberatory and anti-patriarchy. And I've been in them like a couple of times, and that's amazing. Well, where have you found these sort of places? Well, I went to the Being a Man conference at the South Bank Centre a couple of years, like a year ago, I think, a couple of year and a half ago. And that, whilst it wasn't all kind of ultra... Like, not, not all men would define as feminists there. Not all men that were there would even approve of feminism but the majority of the men there and it wasn't just men there was women too but we're talking about the difficulties of, of, of being a man in society so a lot of them were talking about patriarchy even if they weren't using that word and a lot of them were crying talking about being vulnerable talking about mental health issues there was prisoners there talking about being a prisoner from a very emotional space rather than you know a macho space and that was that was amazing to me even though I probably, if I sat down with those men in a different format, might have a lot of arguments with them. Uh, just the nature of that space. I know that it was a space set up by a woman. So, I mean, who knows? It's like the campaign for uh, the campaign for living, uh, what's it, the calm, whatever that is, the campaign uh, against being miserable. So, I, I, yeah, I'm, but campaign against living miserably. There you go. Good, good work. 
that, that was set up by a woman too. So it's interesting, even when men are getting these liberatory spaces, uh, it, it often is taking a woman to set them up because we're so bloody uh, pushed, pushed down by our masculinity that we don't kind of, when we, when we sort of try and push our way out of it, we seem to end up in really weird positions rather than saying, hey, other men who feel like me, let's get together and talk about of, our feelings. Why aren't we doing that? You know, I mean, we're doing it now, I guess. So that's the thing is, only two of us. I remember there was a piece on The Guardian yesterday about a sort of, um, it's like a sort of like, you know, a day sort of celebrating and trying to bring women to the music industry through like, a, like various strands. There's you know, like talks and workshops going on all day. And obviously, like the first comment was someone going, "Oh, and I guess a day dedicated to just all men would be seen as, you know, misogyny." And it's like, no, you're just getting it so wrong. And that's right. the exact reason why like, I would never set up a space for all men because essentially, like, you just—it's just out of context. Like the internet is. Yeah, I often describe it as like a massive wind tunnel that just strips off context of everything, so everything ends up being this like singular points. It's hard to really group things together. I find. Yeah. But it's just. Yeah, I think it just. Again, it's that inertia of being a sort of white man, and you go like, "Oh, you know, what happens if it comes across wrong? I don't want to be, you know, like, I, don't know, you get, I get worried about the idea of. I can I'm totally understand why your that space is radical and like the benefits that would come from it, but yeah, doing it is like a whole other practice. Oh yeah, isn't it? I, I think so too. I mean, essentially, my show was designed to speak to men, and I encouraged, I tried to create, I guess, a space that would would be a mostly male audience, although. Uh, I would say my more of my audience members have been women over the time I've been doing that show, and and, and often it speaks to women more. more like a, a lot of women are quite big fans of that show, uh, and it's hard to get like a male. It's hard. It's hard to reach the men I want to reach with that show, because um, obviously people who who come to it who are men even are halfway there, if not all all the way there before they've even come into the room, and for them it's just a, a nice experience of someone else agrees with me and is, is, is naming this Which problem. Is, I think it's so important though, it goes back to that language thing, isn't it? When you start getting armed with terms and you hear people talk about it and you start to figure out, like, kind of define yourself within, you know, it's pretty, it is pretty important and, you know, very powerful. But yeah, it's like, well, because obviously you were shouting out about trying to get it into schools and trying yeah. to find, you know... Yeah, I'd love to get that into schools, but it's, I think it's, a, in a way, it's a hard show to sell to schools. Uh, I've had some students... Uh, interested in getting it on at their universities, but none of the universities have gone with it yet. I think that's the problem. If you if you name the problem as kiriarchy, it becomes quite hard for uh, institutions to support it because they're supporting something that uh, is saying that they're wrong uh, in them in their structural nature. So yeah, the second question I ask everybody, and it's coming in an interesting, like interestingly late in the show, but I quite like that sometimes, is uh, what do you do now? And I, I guess we've had some hints at what you do now from the conversation we've had so far, but. Um, as in job-wise, up to you how you take it. Right? Um, I live and work in London. Um, work for a independent record label, uh, doing a role called A and R, which is artist and repertoire. So, essentially, finding and developing new artists for the label, as well as working with the current roster of artists that we have to essentially deliver whatever it is they've been essentially signed for. So that could be, you know, just a single track which they we want to put out, and we've on that or an album and you know it's nice because you know, what's very refreshing about it as a job is that every conversation I have is different it's always with a different person and then everything has this kind of different set of kind of issues or problems or it's a very different kind of creative way of thinking each time because 
some artists you know come fully formed and are ready to just put their stuff out others need producers or you know other members of other musicians to come in and help them flesh out what that is so it's kind of varying levels which is why it's really exciting I think just because it doesn't repeat itself or it doesn't feel like it's repeated itself yet so. that's good I mean when, when did music come into your life um, I think I could going back to how um, very, from a very early age I luckily had a cousin who was about four or five years older than me so when I was about six no, no, about seven or eight he was 14, 15 and as a result had quite and also had impeccable taste and really on point for a sort of 90s teenager so my first albums very luckily were things like Beastie Boys and Radiohead and wow. like Nirvana and all this like, you know, really great stuff which worried my mum infinitely but um, I also used it as a real kind of there of solace and refuge away from essentially like parents that would argue a lot and I'd spend a lot of time you know doing the classic like one weekend with one parent one weekend with the next parent and as a result that would involve normally long car rides between people's houses so I would always have you know what started as a CD player and stack of CDs and then obviously an iPod and it just kind of progressed from there and then yes I'd playing music got into bands that's how I ended up falling into this industry it was actually from being in a band that was sort of signed to a small UK independent label also released a record in Japan and toured a lot so what's your instrument? Uh, it was guitar originally and I played bass guitar in the band that was in. but actually yeah, I had a really difficult time being in a band I think I just found it very stressful got very depressed uh, so I ended up having to leave like, after the first album and then went travelling for six months moved to China hooked <laughs> um, in a bar and DJed out there and then sort of put enough money together to then do the Trans-Siberian Railway back to Europe. Oh, yeah. yeah, really was this kind of, again, my girlfriend at the time and a lot of my other friends, I never went to university, so like a lot of my friends had done the whole like gap year, you know, worked in the pub, used that money to then go off and do something really exciting with it and then come back to university and have a really, you know, kind of awakening, you know, which is kind of what most people saw it, saw it as. And... Yeah, I didn't do that. Essentially, all the money that I made from working in bars and doing odd jumps. I was like an ice cream man at one point, and just those are really funny roles. Would always just go into essentially just putting, you know, like paying rent or like eating. Right. And then, you know, that was between touring. So the band was making money and stuff, but kind of it was not enough to really be like, oh, we've made it. Yeah. You know, all the sort of support that comes with that. So yeah, I just had to get out and worked and sold everything I owned, moved to China, and then. I was living in Basingstoke around that time and then got back to the UK and moved to Bristol just because it was either London or Bristol. I knew a lot of people who were in Bristol and it felt like a bit more of an exciting and slightly smaller yeah. space to get into. My family live in Bristol so I know Bristol quite well. It's a great place. And also I think what was nice is that I really hated the school I was at. It's like a uh, kind of private school by the uh, by the time I got to my A-levels there. Like, I despised it and for so many reasons. You know, I wasn't... I hated all the sports that were put forward, you know, this, but like, again, everything we've already just touched yeah. upon, like I really, although didn't have the language or like, wasn't able to define what I really didn't like about it, I just hated it so much, was so angry with it, so I ended up just really not paying attention, you know, like was never in school longer than I needed to be, I think I scraped like sort of two B's and a C at A level, which is still decent, but that was a, you know, private school used to churning people out into right. sort of like, you know, Red Brick Universities, you know, Oxbridge, you know, A students. So I was seen as instantly kind of marginalised instantly by not partaking in that. And it was also, I've never been ever referred to as grade smart, like I just can't do exams well. You came back to Bristol. Ah, uh, yes, this was the interesting thing. So what was lucky about it is that most people I ended up meeting in the friendship group I got there were all at Bristol University. 
and you know they're incredibly smart scientists and, you know, people doing very interesting degrees and also like fairly intelligent kind of open people which really exposed me to like a lot of really great things but also it's funny because of say if I'd gone to university I would have never ended up somewhere like Bristol University because I didn't have the grades for it however so I would have never met these people right. these people would never have been my friends I would have you know that same all these systems that we're talking about if I you know so I didn't know what I wanted to do I would have ended up doing like a media degree or something and ended up you know kind of being a very different bunch of people in my life probably would have made a like very different sort of turn yeah but because I was sort of surrounded by people who you know I knew from like my school those kind of people but were all slightly different you know it was just really interesting I think and actually kind of quite yeah, just a really interesting time on like kind of you know everything around it, like the geography of you know like the fact that I was near these people, all this kind of stuff. Which is also why I like living around here in Newcross because obviously Goldsmiths is around here. Right. Good, like a really great art and science university. But because it's still fairly cheap to live around here, it's the only university in like kind of the main London area, apart from say Kingston, where students can afford to live around here after they graduate. You know, like if you're at Central Saint Martins or anywhere else, it's like. Or LSE or whatever, like, you know, all their campuses are zone one. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't live around there. Like, so it means there's actually no kind of interesting like, hub of sort of young people kind of keeping the area kind of ticking over, you know? So there's still good gigs, you know, really interesting events, obviously house parties and just a bit of a culture that just comes with being around here. Like I went, like I, you know, I went for a run like two weekends ago and, you know, there was like, students drinking on the path as well as you know like young families with prams being pushed around you know like there's a kind of real kind of like kind of like kind of nice balance of people like there's still enough young people being silly and then like enough kind of like you know like early 30s couples doing well it's like a good place to be yeah no it's a, I mean Newcross is quite a, a, an area I like quite a lot yeah I know quite a few people in Broccoli kind of ways so I've kind of been through this kind of I played a few gigs around here as well. I used to be in bands myself, but never, never got signed or anything. Before we sort of started recording, we were talking about things to talk about, and you sort of said it would be interesting for you to talk about gender and sexuality because it's something you don't normally talk about. It's something you've been thinking a lot recently, and obviously you'd heard my show relatively recently too, so you knew I was on board for that kind of talk. But I mean, some, something that you sort of touched on earlier, I guess, but I thought I'd come back to was. Uh, sexuality and how you think about your sexuality now. You were saying that that kind of changed. What, 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 what does that? What do you, what do you mean about that? Um, I was talking to my mum about it actually. She's like really great to sort of discuss these things with, and she sort of put me onto two terms I'd never heard before. One which is um, androphilia and gynophilia. And androphilia is essentially um, just it's like being attracted to like masculinity or like you know men. And then gynophilia is being attracted to femininity or women. And I just thought it was two really interesting terms. Because although they're still slightly restrictive, because it's either male or female still, it doesn't, you know, there's no yeah. middle ground. What is quite interesting is that it doesn't require to know the gender or the what person who refer to themselves as one of those identity. Right. You know, for example, like obviously, if, you know, what we'd say that like, if like a, you know, woman is into other women, it, she's you know a homosexual. But you can you don't know the gender of the person you're talking about so you're when just you refer to it. So you're just you know you're so either someone way. who's into kind of femininity or masculinity as kind of codes. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's still restrictive. It's not um you know it's not the term that's going to unlock everything for everyone. But I just it just got me thinking about it because I think like I was saying earlier when I think 
that it's a real time and feels very exciting for us all to be very progressive and you know like I think men can especially redefine what it is to be a man and I think the more people that can do that and start to you know if you want to wear clothes with, you know, like women would normally wear for example like that's a space to step into Yeah. you know like or just even just being slightly more androgynous in your like dress you know like that kind of thing yeah. I find that, like playing with that for example really interests me personally but it's like you know it's not a step towards like you know then homosexuality it's not like I'm then going to because I'm starting to identify with things that I see as female doesn't mean I'm then going to start you know it's then going to sort of have repercussions on my own sort of sexual preference if that makes sense yeah although it's an interesting one like I think straight as a category is useful because um, it's useful to name what is considered to be uh, the normal uh, a different word than normal because normal is a fucking uh, ideologically loaded word but it's also kind of like I'm, I would be quite happy to get rid of the concept of straight and just for everybody to like but this is a kind of tomorrow conversation yeah I think we're not there yet no I absolutely I think it's the thing you also you need it's between two points isn't it where we start to adopt new language and new terms which we kind of become more inclusive and you know like kind of less sort of like well, the original boxes that are there for people to fill in right at the same time we still need the old terms and they are as valuable because it shows the sort of distance that we're now starting to move you know, right. kind of create if that makes sense like, well, so I mean I define myself as straight-ish these days because first of all I, you know some some men I guess I, I find attractive in certain kinds of ways um, but also, um, having had uh, group sex experiences, I've found out that um, I, I, I'm certainly not repelled in any way by men. Uh, like, it might be for me to fully get off, that I need someone uh, with a with certain physical attributes that, that get me going, but that doesn't mean that I have any problem with other men in that environment. Or that I, like, I've... I've, I've I've engaged in what might be called homosexual uh, sex acts, but uh, but again, like I, I, I like what does that even mean? So I guess, but then I, I structurally am straight. I benefit from being heterosexual in most elements of my life, and so straight-ish seems like a good compromise. Yeah, I think it's interesting because obviously you kind of obviously went on a conversation of purely sexuality there and sexual preference, then blowing it wider instantly by going, well, I obviously benefit from being sort of heterosexual. I wouldn't, I don't know, I think it's, I think given, although obviously there's still a lot of mileage to become, I don't think there's that many benefits from being gay or straight. And I work in creative industries, so it's always a bit of a bubble, I think. Yeah, you know, I like, think that's an interesting one, though. I think that's definitely a bubble, like yeah, you say. No, just, let's not talk about that, because it'll just end that. It's just, yeah, a pointless But also it's about, like, but, but there is something to be said around that, that, you know, LGBTQIA uh, people are saying, you know, better and more interestingly than what I'm going to say but there is still like kind of hierarchy even then like so when we're like so you know a cis gay person has a lot more cultural power than uh, you know somebody who's not cis who is also you know queer so it becomes like a really really complicated one if you're middle class white and cis and gay uh, whether you're a man or a woman you probably can get away with a hell of a lot more culturally than if you were working class or a person of colour or all sorts of things that's kind of complicate that um, that's kind of it's interesting that there's that definition though isn't it because obviously like you were saying sort of straight-ish and there's obviously things that you would say do not behind closed doors you know there could be 20 people in the room you know, like, <laughs> right, whatever. Right, but right. as in like you know within like kind of actual sex itself 
compared to then what that means on like a sort of society level. And it's that kind of privacy divide, isn't it? Where, for example, I think it's interesting about kind of like homosexuality and then gay couples that I know, the ones that are in it's open fine. relationships, yeah, I find very fine. interesting. For example, because there are spaces within you know London, think, across uh, other cities, across the world, where yeah. like you know they can arrive as a couple, split off for the entire evening you know, with other people and then just rejoin at the end of it and kind of go home together and it's kind of part of their relationship yeah. is that kind of experience where, you know, very, very small minority of heterosexual relationships have that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm in one of those small minority of heterosexual relationships and uh, I'm in an open relationship with my partner uh, 15 years. Uh, we opened up our relationship after 11 years. But I mean, again, this is kind of going back towards the idea of liberation. Like, that heterosexual people can learn from the, the liberation that some uh, queer spaces have found uh, because they hadn't, didn't have to abide by the rules of society because they were already outside them. This is exactly where I've got to. I've actually yeah. been in uh, very sort of, you know, regular relationships for the last... Well, ever, you know, and actually have relationship pops. So I haven't really... This is the first time I've been single properly in probably five years maybe and now it's sort of again with all these sort of ideas and sort of you know thoughts and talking to people and going sort of experiencing a slightly more like alternative in inverted commas that kind of area especially London I sort of yeah start to lead me down a path of like you know the benefits of like an open relationship what can be gained you know like I've never ever questioned any of these things because I've always just been in relationships and it's like again the same systems it's like you know you never have to think about your own sexuality your own preferences, you know, you're always presented with one thing in front of you and you don't really need to look at anything else. You well, know? that's it. If you're lucky, you can follow the rules of society and they will fit with what you want. Yeah. But I don't think very many people actually, uh, if they follow the rules of society, are happy. I mean, I think heterosexual couples, uh, kind of heteronormative culture, I don't think it's making... It's certainly, you know, women have been saying for... for, for years how unhappy that kind of cultural norms can make them but I think men men I wouldn't say equally as much but definitely almost equally as much it's a straitjacket that makes us very unhappy too no I totally agree I mean but you're right to point out that if you can follow that and there are people who obviously still fit within that like yeah. it can't be totally abolished it's not you know it's no. but it's not a watermark to hold everything else against I think that's what needs to change it's well, like I mean, I mean well I'm of the belief that if, if you want to have a monogamous relationship it's even more important to kind of think about these things like so it, I'm a child of divorce too and it, it seems to me that what happens is so often that people kind of assume that they'll be faithful because that's what society has told them that they will be and then when they don't live up to that and then they end up betraying each other's trust and, and, and all of that stuff then they can even personally feel like they've you know they've betrayed themselves they've failed and all of these things whereas if you are in a monogamous relationship and you are aware that that is a choice uh, that actually becomes an active choice that people can easily, more easily make uh, and are less likely to, for those monogamous relationships to end by betrayal or, or uh, affairs, I think, if people are kind of going into them with their eyes open, with the full knowledge that it's work to, to, to do that, to achieve that as an animal. Yeah, I think it's... That's that's attracted to other animals, you have to kind of work at it. That's what's actually very interesting about them, the idea that, you know, naturally those things that come from heteronormative sort of cycles of, you know, jealousy and kind of anger and actually 
you know, those kind of they're like top tier emotions. I refer to them as like they make people really react. You know, like you know, on, on a scale, it's like if you would chart them fairly. Like if people feel them, they tend to do something about it. You know, yeah, not necessarily good or bad, just do something about it. No, having an extreme reaction. Yeah. yeah, and I think actually it would be a very important thing in my own kind of development to put myself in that situation where I'm confronted with those things because I'm coming from such a heteronormative experience and be like okay I'm going to have to really battle with the idea of jealousy and like the idea of this person that I clearly have feelings for and into being with someone else like what does that conjure because obviously that's what you know actually the last relationship I was in for example that actually damaged it sexually like yeah sexually being jealous of someone else like it was like a kind of ex-boyfriend who was still good friends now she was incredibly cool and nothing was going to happen between the two of them but he was such a massive presence that actually when I when other things started going wrong in the relationship and anxieties and stuff kicked up that really became a personal issue for me even though it was like not something she was encouraging or right. do, doing anything different but it really really struggled with it and it really affected it yeah like essentially obviously first these things you know any anxieties or anything obviously are the first thing yeah the first place it hits is always yeah sex which I think is interesting because actually that was it's the first time I've actually ever been jealous within a relationship and like I've never you know really had something I've had to grapple with and it's like never I've always been fairly relaxed about everyone else like around it I've always been fairly confident in that in like in what I bring and like you know who I am in this and I think that's probably part of it I was starting to really redefine myself using this relationship as a bit of a sort of like kind of you know like anchor and it was fairly progressive and she was a very interesting character anyway which allowed me to start thinking like this but it started bringing up all this stuff that I was now no longer I just couldn't ignore it all of a sudden I think I was noticing it for the first time and it was just like really interesting Actually, yeah, you're not just reacting to it you're seeing it yeah. and then considering whether you should react to it yeah and that's a great position to be in I mean, it's, yeah I think that's kind of almost now what I sort of feel like I need to like train myself like at some you know like but as in more of like I kind of want to go into that experience again and sort of see kind of what else like kind of you know what else you have to sort of ride and try and manage and like you know like handle I think it's only going to hopefully make you a better person right I mean it's interesting what you're saying about top tier emotions as well I think that's a really interesting way of, of looking at these things and, and that in its most extreme case is you know violence and, and horrible yeah. horrible things um, and if we want to sort of get rid of violence and horrible things then sort of looking at, at ways of minimising those top tier kind of emotional responses is really important and that's one of the reasons that ultimately I think straight is a thing to try and get rid of as a kind of idea because that's when you know these these sudden moments of like you know if a heterosexual man has another man comes onto them they, they react in this kind of uh, gay panic kind of way like and, uh, and, and that's very violent and horrible uh, if, but, but at the same time those men think that they can hit on women with no consequences but if a man hits on them then that's a violent reaction like it, that, that's something that needs to be got rid of and then also that kind of that's an interesting thing when you start thinking about you know trans issues if you like I mean again you know this conversation like like two, two sort of cisgender straight white men talking about all these issues There's, again I feel like I need to acknowledge the problematic element of that but I also think it's important to have these conversations uh, at least amongst ourselves right and yes you're listening listeners listening but, no, but I think that's the only reason why you have to caveat it with certain, yeah. certain sentences it's like yeah because of the listeners yeah. listening I have to oh, even more caveats here than I because, normally because would because of you yeah you people at home you're, you're to blame yeah like for me that's been an interesting thing to think like 
So if I'm attracted to women, uh, which I am, I'm not more attracted or less attracted to cis women or trans women, I'm attracted to both uh, groups of women, all women. Um, and it's interesting to sort of, some people would consider that not straight because that, and those people are wrong because they're seeing uh, gender in the completely the wrong way but in a way I think that's the kind of thing we need to sort of interrogate in our own views and also not just it's not just about cis and transgender it's also about race things like that like we're programmed to fancy particular kinds of women like thin, thin fat is another thing that we're programmed to and I've over the years started to kind of like go hang on what parts are actually my desire and what parts are, are, are what I'm programmed to desire and I found over the years that I'm attracted to a much larger group of people than I initially thought and I don't see any reason why that won't someday include men uh, cisgender men I don't know it just might take a lot longer to get to the point where I can like fully be sexually aroused by that uh, kind of person yeah I think that's kind of yeah think of very long like very similar lines because essentially like where this where all this thinking is coming from is essentially me just now interrogating every want and desire that I've ever thought about you know so that is you know pushing yourself into slightly more kind of weirder situations that you wouldn't necessarily do otherwise you know, even if it's just a one-off but just to go like I now know there's some boundary there that might get redefined again in five years or ten years you know it's like this is now a progression that was the other thing actually because I got dumped um, as part of this relationship like it ended on not my terms which again was uh, not like a new thing most relationships I've had have sort of ended in a very kind of amicable way it was you know I lost a week being very sad and being very upset about it and like cried a lot you know just generally very down and I think because actually I didn't realise how much I'd put on this relationship just mentally on my own you know without even discussing with her <laughs> but it was it's been interesting because it's, there's no point I'm trying to get back to you know because I actually can't remember the last time I was single and what that felt like nor like ever really thought about what it is to be that or what it is to be me means that now it's just seen as like a constant progression from then you know there's I'm going it's, out, it's still continuing forward there's no I'm not trying to like lose a week be a bit sad go out with some drinks with some friends have a random hookup and be back on my feet like some sort of like cycle is complete and I'm ready to start again it's like no this is now a, you know progressive place I'm in so I have to just keep moving forward so it's now it's as much of an adventure as it is being in a relationship if that makes sense you know? well that's an interesting thing too right we, we are so often told that we're only fully properly functional human beings if we're in a relationship yeah. and then we start to define ourselves by that fact like, and, and, and I think that's people like think that, that it's only women who think like that like a lot of cultural messages are about like women want to settle down and men want to sow their wild oats right but actually uh, I think there's a, quite a lot of social uh, information that says that men also want to settle down and, and, and want I think to be probably more so it's actually maybe, yeah, the, maybe that's right the way this thinking's come around is actually from talking to two good friends of mine who do happen to be women who have forced the forced the wrong term actively and consciously stayed single right obviously there has been you know that's been peppered with occasional sort of hookups and like you know a few dates and things but nothing ever considered like long term or even anything considered with any sort of future to it and what they've done is essentially tried to be the best people and figure out who exactly they are and you know what's funny is one of them within a year and a 
year and like a couple of months of doing that has you know had a salary increase of like fifteen thousand pounds you know like really gone up in our own career you know run a marathon on the correct terms that we were also discussing beforehand not in some sort of self-congratulatory charity thing you know like got incredibly healthy you know like just really organized everything else because she hasn't had these other sort of weird system like kind of systematic kind of like factors to sort of try and figure out and put in place alongside everything right. like, you know it's been yeah I mean she's gained so much room and she's now ready to sort of start she now wants to sort of you know start seeing people and sort of bringing someone else into the sort of fold on it but it's just cool right but, knowing yourself yeah, yeah. It's, it's something we're not encouraged to do no. we're, we're encouraged to go out and have a relationship as quick as possible in certain terms but not know who we are when we go into that relationship yeah you know, and I think it's kind of exaggerated by things like Tinder and kind of you know even like a kind of soul you know like the way yeah. like you kind of all these sort of platforms and stepping stones are how to help you meet people like you know because you're kind of like with that capable of yeah. being on our own but actually like you know it's like a whole industry has been created around the idea that like you know, single is bad you know there aren't apps and there aren't tech people disrupting the idea of that like no one goes again like, that's what we were talking about earlier with just like technology it doesn't disrupt things like there's no one disrupting police violence for example like there's no one disrupting the idea that you shouldn't be single like imagine an app that was like genuinely trying to be like just celebrated the fact that you were independent and just created opportunities and allowed you to be better at being independent well again I think it's like I've read a lot of women writers who talk about those kind of things and it's because they have had to liberate themselves in order to survive in the bloody world they're in uh, whereas men are not interrogating ourselves as much in those kind of ways I think and it would be really good for us to do the same kinds of things as that like instead of like there's so much entitlement when like I think you're a very good example of, of a way to react to being dumped that I don't see very often in men like so often there's there's much more anger and kind of you know they don't allow themselves a week to cry they get angry and they say she's a bitch all sorts of whatever and then they're like you know, have even more objectionable attitudes to women as a result of that experience, rather than interrogate their own behaviour, their own. Yeah, uh, you know, because the thing is, what's also interesting is that I was actually, actually I was left for a woman, which again, you know, I, I, <laughs> what's hilarious about it is that it wasn't that it was very like left field and. Like, it wasn't totally like within her sort of character it wasn't like it was, it was like fairly actually kind of weirdly understandable but it's such a sort of unknown and like something I've never really had to deal with before I like didn't really know how to handle it but what was funny is that from talking to people about it guys and girls there was no sense of like any pride being knocked and actually I don't know if that's then me trying to be very like kind of liberal minded and okay with it or like actually I'd probably have more of a problem with like another guy coming in I was like I was trying to been trying to think about it in the last month being like would I have been more would I have been angry would I have reacted more in a kind of like traditional way if it had been a guy or like you know because it's like this is it you know it's just that's definitely an interesting question yeah I mean obviously you know but I'll have to you know, someone experience that yeah, and yeah, then yeah. tell you make sure you get, you get done for a, for a guy as well as, <laughs> find someone between like, in a yeah, 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 yeah I guess you just you don't, to, to really do it properly you'd have to then be dumped for like a non-binary person and like a asexual person like really go into all of the all of the different categories yeah I could case study myself or the more important thing is I think actually the 
conversation that we're having, which a lot of men don't. It's essentially just if I just, you know, other men have probably had experiences and then just finding out how they reacted and why probably mean I don't need to go through that experience right, myself. Absolutely. We just need to talk about it a yeah, bit more. Because yeah, yeah. actually, something I have been doing this year is obviously talking to one, well, obviously, like people don't know that, um, is talking about sex with men in a way that gets past the only, you know, like for most men I find the only way we talk about sex is either if it's a funny story or like they either come across well or if it's a bad story but they still come across okay. You know, there's yeah. nothing that no one tells, like not embarrassing stuff, but no one's just very open about it. Yes. And I was doing that in a relationship and obviously I've kind of stopped doing that because I'm not having sex so it's not really a conversation I can sort of like partake. You know, it's difficult to sort of like ask people to come forward with their own thoughts and active feelings on it and where they are now if you're not kind of having sex with someone I guess on the kind of on a regular level yeah no it's a but I mean I think that's a a really interesting point though about where men are like it definitely is a thing that we need to sort of like yeah just be a bit more real with with ourselves with each other with with women too I mean there's no reason why men and women can't sit together and have really honest, truthful conversations about sex and sexuality, um, apart from the fact that we've taught that that's a bad idea. Like, well, yeah, we, again, we were discussing this before they started recording, but just the idea that sexual education at school, people aren't taught to have good sex, people are just taught to have very penetrative, very, you know, like kind of start, you know, begin, end, beginning and end clearly defined by an act, which is obviously then, you know, like we were talking about rape earlier, has obviously gone on to define law. Like, right. you know, it, it's so... Incorrect in actually like what can be sort of achieved and what can people can actually experience through the act of sex. It just means that everyone has this like false start, you know. Like you have to really figure this stuff out on your own. Like and it's like yeah, it's part of it. I think it's because we're all programmed with this idea that penetrative sex is the only real way to have sex. Now, as long as you can, you know, you have to keep that going for as long as possible, and like, you know, you have to really like pleasure them in a certain way. It means that actually like. If, to try and deviate from that conversation, but like no one wants to talk about that bit because actually that's the bit that everyone always struggles with, you know, like you know, like every man has like varying levels of like how long you can last. If that's like a term you want to define your sex. But what by. even that means is it yeah. kind of like what the hell does that even mean? I mean, the, the reality is that people have such a spectrum of different uh, ways of being in terms of sex. Like, there's a lot of women I know who talk about how kind of this idea that a man has to last a long time is not necessarily creating the kind of sex they want to have anyway. That there's, there's, there's also plenty of women I know who like, you know, expect that and that's cool and if that's how they negotiate their sex, that's great. But like this idea that like swapping one rule book for a new rule book, so like the old rule book was you have have sex, it's about, you know, it's as quick, you know, it doesn't matter about their pleasure, you just get it done. We've changed it for this rule book that says we have to achieve an orgasm. It has to happen through penetrative sex. What the fuck? Yeah. Which is not even possible for lots of women. It's really funny, actually. Hollywood did this. Uh, the Revolutionary Road, which is an uh, American book that got um, turned into a movie right. about... I've seen the film. So you've seen the film. So yeah. there's actually a very interesting sex scene in the middle of it where it's, um, it lasts literally about sort of 30 seconds. Yeah. Not, but not as in like yeah, an edited yeah. scene, the actual yeah, yeah. act of it. And it's funny because Hollywood has this such normal tradition of it, yeah, playing by the rule book, you know, like normally sex scenes are kind of, you know, like one in Titanic, which is obviously like another Leonardo DiCaprio movie that happened 
years before Revolutionary Road was a like sort of set. You know, like that sex scene's like heated and long and kind of passionate and this kind of you know, like almost like a James Bond style sort of hookup. Yeah. Whereas like the one in Revolutionary Road is actually like directed it justice in the sense of it was like of the time. It was that thing of just like kind of in out, doesn't matter like pleasures involved or not. Like sex hadn't been sort of commoditized or commercialized and sold back at people as like an idea. You know, I think like that was kind of. Well, yeah, it was like the 50s, wasn't it? So it was like as advertising was starting to creep in, it's like a kind of phenomena and sort of, sort of change and shape people's needs and desires based on essentially what you can sell people. Right. And I think it's, that's another interesting thing about the moment we're in now as well. When you look at like pornography and how like ready, readily available pornography is, and yet pornography is still selling us certain versions of sex and sexuality, and a lot of men are influenced by those versions of sex and sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I'm not anti-pornography. I'm pro uh, real sex being seen like this and there's movements towards that there's pornographers out there doing that I mean uh, and I think that's a thing of like when you're constantly seeing unreal versions of sex all the time how can you then appreciate what real sex can be yeah it's a really weird one used pornography before but again I've always struggled with finding things that appeal to me I've always found it very difficult to find pornography that resonates with me on a level that isn't just like very primitively sexual you know and it's also a weird thing because I have a slight moral issue with it in the sense that there's obviously so much available and it's, a lot of it's for free you can find it it's like you know but it's, it's sex work the idea of it you know looking at it for free is actually like a very right. dangerous like, area to be in because that becomes very you know obviously there's questions about how exclusive it is anyway it's like an industry but the fact that you're then not even paying for it where right. there are a number of ways to legitimately pay for it and safely and securely and all this kind of stuff but people, because it's seen as such a deviance, you know, getting it for free kind of cleans your conscience of it slightly. You know, like you're right. not, you're not, you're not committing financially, so you don't have, you know, like you're not addicted to pornography. You're not using pornography. It's easier to kind of ignore the fact that you're using it if you don't pay for it. Sure. Like every, like, like goes with anything, you know. And it's like, actually, I find that very conflicted because it is sex work at the end of the day. And it's like, although you know, that's a profession that again needs to, we need to change how we look at it anyway as like a society, but to not pay for it when it's someone you know right oh, well as a, as a, you, you're someone who works in music and so free music destroys a lot of musicians careers yeah uh, so it, absolutely it should, it should be yeah I mean one of the reasons for redefining and seeing sex workers as sex workers is to protect their labour rights and their work and you are absolutely right uh, there's definitely ethical questions around that. That's it, because if you took a look at the, like, say, music model, for example, so let's say everyone, like, obviously, a lot of people do steal pornography by illegally downloading it. Let's say then a streaming service like Spotify comes in for pornography, where all of a sudden, you know, artists and performers, you know, like they are in music, are being paid a very low royalty compared to what they were making previously on their own material. All of a sudden, yeah, like, you know, artists' livelihoods have been massively affected, how their lives are have been hugely affected. The kind of gap between being a success and making it with your art and like you know it being a hobby is wider than it's ever been, which obviously creates problems not only you know actually just the pool of talent and like what's actually available becomes smaller and smaller. It's a privileged few 
music becomes more musicians become more middle class and privileged and from safer backgrounds because that's the yeah, only way to do it. it. Yeah. And it's like I'm not going to you know, it's not to say that pornography will just become exclusively done by middle class people who choose to do it. But no, I mean that's the sad thing is it's quite the opposite of that. Yeah, As it, it becomes devalued, it will become devalued labour with less and less good you know, pay. That's it. If it's less, if it's good less good money's in it because people can get round it and stream it and all this kind of stuff, we're essentially just looking at an advert, like and the money drops off from you know what happens. It doesn't affect the production values because those keep going through the roof like they do with music people, like, you know, but it's like it just affects the actual ground base level of people involved in it which are essentially you know sex workers and it's like really dangerous point to be in I think absolutely I mean so that's definitely something to consider but I also think you know from a from a from the point of view of kind of the way that the media is constructed you know we have a lot of criticism for the uh, the way the representation works in terms of television in terms of film in terms of the arts in general I'd like to see the same level of kind of critical engagement with how uh, pornography is manipulated uh, images. Uh, like one of the things that should be there within sex education for, for, for young people is that they should be taught that what they're seeing is manipulated images. Uh, and then that can also help them to see how that, that sex is constructed through ideological reasons too. Like how it's heteronormative sex that we're being presented how not all men want to want to have the kind of sex they're seen as having in pornography and not all women want to have the same sex it's a point again where sort of media and technology are just ahead of education and understanding on it for example I was talking to a, um, a guy I know who has two kids and he had to explain to his like 14 year old daughter the other day like what a gangbang is as in but like as in multiple eyes on one girl because a boy at her school had had like shown everyone in the playground like a video on his phone and like you know it's like wow again like you know we thought our sexual education was fairly limited and prohibitive and sort of you know like causes problems like now if like they're essentially you know that's not going to be discussed that's going to essentially be ignored by you know the school and everything and essentially those kids will just be punished for showing that kind of thing but imagine having to explain to like a teenager like what that barely just had the conversation about what sex is in the first place you know that's as a parent probably something that's very kind of you know difficult to kind of get your head around how you want to you know how you are going to parent this essentially to then have to then explain what all these incredibly violent you know like kind of heteronormative but extreme cases like versions of it like sex are it does it, it definitely is a we do, yeah exactly and if you're not engaging around the issues around the pornography then that is the education that children nowadays are having in a way that we didn't we, we were denied decent sex education uh, kids, kids these days are still denied decent sex education but they get sex education through pornography which is better than nothing in some ways but it also causes a lot of other problems I think so yeah I think we're we're, yeah, we're definitely going to have to probably wrap up quite soon. But the last question I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? And we've been talking earlier on about a podcast that you're thinking of setting up. Yes. Um, so obviously that was kind of the whole reason this introduction that's, yeah, that's came why we're around. Talking, yeah. Yes. Um, so trying to put together an idea for a podcast that we were sort of just talking about earlier, how it sort of it plays with the sort of sonic kind of boundaries I guess within what you can do between two people's ears and using uh, actually I haven't really rehearsed this so I'm not really sure I'll just talk about it <laughs> well you did rehearse it we, we, we talked know, about it previously now, now choked but I mean it's a, yeah so you, so it's a music podcast yeah so 
again, it's kind of the only thing I, I never went to university or have any other skill sets. All I can do is kind of music-based things. So that's like, well, I guess it's also my passion. I guess that's where it sort of starts from. But um, we're looking at using a uh, binaural microphone, which is essentially like a 3D microphone. So you can map within to sort of, you know, people, people's ears an actual kind of room or sort of sonic experience that really kind of... You were talking about it earlier on. It's like, you, you know, you'll hear voices on different sides of, your, of the room in different spaces around you in the music. It'll be like being at a party and drifting between different spaces within the room at different sides. I mean, it, it may sound like... like I, I'm only sort of saying the same things that you were saying to me earlier on. So this is your ideas coming out of my mouth to a certain extent. I mean, people listening on headphones, it might be a little bit like listening to this podcast that, that we're, we're recording right this moment, in that people listening will be able to hear the music, uh, they'll be able to hear conversations on other parts of the room at this point, because we're less, less on our own than we, we started this conversation. Um, and in fact, that's going to be an interesting one for people listening. Like, yeah. Sometimes it's if you can hear too much of a conversation in the, in the background, then it's kind of like, which one do I listen to? Uh, so hope, hopefully, listeners, you're listening to us. But but yes, you're, you were. It'll also be interesting for us to go back and listen to the other conversations that yeah, right. we right. haven't heard. We can't listen to in this moment. Yeah, probably been insulted profusely. <laughs> Who knows? But I mean, so yeah, so you so the podcast will have a kind of sonic. Uh, spatial awareness to it you know. yeah it's playing with that kind of idea of essentially like what you can do between two like, you, like people's ears you know and kind of what kind of tricks and the production you can bring in to sort of heighten that experience of essentially just interviews and music you know where you can obviously layer them and edit them on top of each other but if it's using this binaural microphone which maps 3D sound can then really have a lot of fun with that where you can you know again because it maps rooms perfectly so you can open the window and you know that'll come from where the window is you can go turn the taps on if it was in a kitchen and like people wouldn't understand where the sound is exactly coming from it's not just left and right it's front and back and above and below it means you can really sort of start to you know just kind of I don't know play with it as just a kind of concept and it's like a medium I guess just sort of explore the boundaries of it right and it will involve people having to have headphones. Right? Yeah, I think that's the only thing. It will look. Yeah, you'll have to listen in headphones. Because, I mean, the, 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 definitely the, the interesting thing about the podcast landscape is that uh, so much of it, in a way, is designed for tinny headphones or through laptops. You know, yeah. like it's designed to just be audible over the sounds of the world to a certain extent. Um, rather than sort of an audiophile kind of musical production. Yeah, I think you'll be able to use, you know, won't need kind of high-end audio gear to enjoy it as an experience no, you'll need headphones on but I think it's that whole thing of again as an art form or a medium to try and do something you have to create some sort of parameter don't you but actually like it's you know well, I'm, I'm very excited by the idea. I mean, uh, you talked about it at length earlier on. Yeah, I've uh, lost all my confidence in it now, a microphone. Well, you, should, you, yeah, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't need your confidence in it, because it sounds like it'll be a really interesting show. I mean, <laughs> we talk about like, how I've had bad sex this year, but not talk about an idea for a podcast. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting what, yeah, right, what, what we feel comfortable talking about or not. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's good that you're comfortable talking about bad sex, though. I think that's if the trade-off is you're going to feel awkward about your ideas, then I don't think that's too bad a thing. No. I mean, we were talking earlier before we started recording about how men are sort of programmed to uh, to believe in ourselves a little bit more than we should be. Uh, so I guess this is the this is the way it goes, right? We start feeling 
uh, self-doubt a lot more, which is, you know, it, at some point this pendulum will go back to the middle, but it's probably healthy for people like us to feel insecure about our ideas for a little while. Yeah, I think it's also, I think, you know, in the same way that, you know, when you're starting anything, you kind of hone a bit of a pitch on it, because obviously you've got to sell it into someone, either the participants or an audience eventually. Oh, wow. <laughs> Background sound fans are going to love this moment. Yeah. But yeah, I think I just haven't really nailed like, nailed the pitch on it, I guess. It's probably the easiest way of describing it. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Do you know what it's called yet? Yeah, we're going to call it Dissident Kitchen, um, which is a term I stole from another podcast by the Kitchen Sisters. Um, the term comes from sort of Soviet Russia and uh, how essentially kind of kitchens became these real hubs for alternative conversation free thinking as well as the black market so exchanging you know Beatles records or Elvis or you know certain books that were banned by the state and because all these things were so hot they would never leave the confines of someone's kitchen because well if you got found with one you'd be you know disappear in the middle of the night and because no one could have conversations that were at all until like you kind of against the state or anyone in power at work or in a park and obviously all phones were tapped and there was a huge amount of paranoia within the area these kitchens kind of became this safe haven for just kind of dissident thought and kind of culture essentially so the idea is to take that as an idea have these kind of weird interviews sonic experiences with music and kind of conversation in people's kitchens and you know the kitchens are specific to either collectors of musicians or a record label or you know a bunch of party promoters or people who are involved in and around music in different areas who normally when you start your own thing or you have a DIY aesthetic you know you start it from someone's like living room or their kitchen or you all meet somewhere or a cafe you know like it's always a normal sort of central hub for these things before they expand into like a full-blown business with offices or whatever it all starts from one area so trying to bring it into that central area the fact that the microphone, you know, has sort of 3D sonic capabilities means that we should, in a very interesting way, be able to map the room out so people have a real understanding of what the room is. It's, That's so yeah. interesting to me, like sonically, because I mean, my my show is about capturing the room experience, uh, and I'm kind of making a drama show that's kind of designed to to replicate the experience of getting better acquainted, and you're grounded in the reality, the moment, like as much as people might not always enjoy the background sound. The background sound that's been happening behind us has really situated this conversation in a moment, in a place, in a room. But with this microphone, I can only have a stereo uh, soundscape. I can't map it out to the degree that you're talking about. I, I'm kind of excited for the dramatic uh, opportunities of that. Like yeah, there's some work to be done on the... spaces, right? There's some work to be done on the sort of, like, how, like how it all works, and it's like still very much road testing at the moment, but feels like it's very possible and it is just you know these microphones are just incredibly powerful it's ridiculous like if someone if you you know these things actually look like heads which is very funny as well because I mean that like, kind of there's a lot to be sort of potentially fleshed out on the idea of you know turning this into like a character or you know like how, right. what is the central head in, in a room but you know they're so like like hearing is such an incredibly powerful um, sort of feeling though I totally lost the word sense there we go that's the one well I think yeah I mean I think feeling and feeling and sense yeah one of the two they're close together I mean we have feelings around our senses we have senses around our feelings okay um, well, this is what I was trying to say is because it's such a sort of powerful sense you know 
these microphones are so in tune with that that if someone was to you know go go close to the ear on the microphone and whisper very very close to it like the same way you get that microphone noise it's kind of buzzy you know if I'm very close to something you actually end up your ear gets hot like literally someone is whispering in your ear it's like it's mad like the level of kind of trickery you can do with it alright so can I it, 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 it triggers the sense yeah the touch sensations in yeah. your ear because of, it's it's so like as if yeah. it was someone, someone that's in really ear. interesting so it's like you know it'd be really interesting just playing it with a kind of like horizontal stereo field which is obviously all around you and that's you know talking in someone's ear or having a conversation at the back of the room but just the right you know you'd really notice it is there or behind you you'd really you know notice where it is but then then you start to turn that into like a more of a 3D space and let's say you know you even just sit on chairs and talk above the microphone above you, yeah, all of a sudden true. you know the interview you could have with them then could almost be like you know like a snapshot of what's going on below and you end up kind of you can really I mean the drama end of it you could really right, start to play really with right it really interests me because you, you I mean yeah you can have it from someone's point of view walking around a thing you know there's so many really interesting things you could do with that so I'm really excited to, to hear it and to yeah, when it when it comes out to hear it, but also to sort of learn. Yeah, because I guess you, you're you're at the cutting edge to a certain extent. Like you're learning how to use <laughs> Wouldn't it. Wouldn't say that, but yeah, well, yeah. Like... I mean, I'm not saying that you know. I, I don't. I'm not trying to aggrandize you so okay. much as to say it. For me, it's exciting that you're 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 doing this work that I can then come along and sort of use without having to do as much of it, right? So. That's good yeah. from my point of view. I think also it's, it's good. It's that thing of, it's been an idea for about six months now and it's obviously slowly getting there as these things always take a bit of time. You know, the kind of ramp to yeah. where it actually gets yeah, going yeah, obviously yeah. longer. I think hopefully doing this and then obviously we need to figure out when this goes out but should be a bit of a catalyst to be like, right, I've got to get this done because yeah. either someone will start doing it before me. Right. <laughs> no, I think this should be a good yeah, catalyst, hopefully. Absolutely. I think saying the idea out loud uh, in public kind of forces you to do that. I've done that about a few things. Uh, in my life and it has meant that I've done them um, so yeah hopefully this will work out that for you it's been a real pleasure getting better great of you today like not just on mic but also beforehand when we had a chat beforehand uh, the last thing I ask uh, my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience okay well um, yeah, thank you Dave <laughs> but then also yeah thanks for listening it's been pretty interesting experience actually good well I'm glad it's been an interesting experience for me I'm going to try whispering into the microphone goodbye as, a, as an end because it seems fitting goodbye everyone you can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast you can like it on Facebook www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. On Monday the 26th of September... I'm launching my new podcast, The Family Tree. When my dad found out about a mystery concerning a long-forgotten friend of his, I decided to investigate it in the only way that I know how, by having conversations. I can't make judgments or say anything without knowing all the facts and everything around it. It's sort of exploring each of the parameters of each potential story you're given and trying to work out how it can fit into each one of those. And I guess in a way it's all of them until 
until it's none of them or one of them. Mark Sullivan, who disappeared 15 years ago, was found dead in January this year when a forest was cleared for a new building development. I see the world differently, having known Mark Sullivan. You're like the, the, the person who's the witness for all of them. Mm-hmm. You're, you, the only yeah. thing they'll know of their dad as, a, as an adult, you know, is going to be through, through your eyes. I mean, I guess that's quite a big responsibility. It's, it's difficult. The body they found still had the arm and teeth that he lost in a car accident and seems to have died eight years before he disappeared. I mean, who's the dad you'd spent so much time with if your dad is a body that can't be the dad that you grew up with. It doesn't make any sense. Like, even if there's some other reason for that other body, he'll still have died. But whether I would have felt different if Mark had disappeared before the accident compared to when he did disappear, I don't know. You keep talking about this mystery and I I think, I don't know, I think someone's made a mistake somewhere. I know you don't mean it like this, but the question's almost offensive. In this podcast, I try to unpick this mystery through a series of conversations with Mark's family and friends. But I don't know, and there's only so many ways that someone can say I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a mystery, it's just... Yeah, you said it's a mistake. There are things that I think I probably can't tell you about. But you also can't deny that it's it's evidence. Obviously, there's a difference between evidence and proof. Right. I mean, there are things you can't explain. If he turns up, he turns up. But, you know, we're fine as we are. He's not going to. So, yeah, I'm not thinking about it because... Because he's not going to. to. If ghosts do exist, I think they wouldn't look how they looked when they when they died. They'd go back to how they looked in life. So, so Dad's ghost would have an arm. And I wasn't sure what you would have perceived that as. It's interesting that now I'm sort of this far into this project, I've spoken to so many people and I still don't really have anything uh, to fill those holes with. Did Mark have a twin? Was there some sort of shady dealing on the part of the police? Was there was there a mistake in the identification? All of these questions in the air, I think. I can't explain how that ghost then became a, a body that, that's been buried. That's a, a sort of a gap for me. I don't understand what he's talking about, how about how he doesn't want to talk about it. Right. I mean, he's got two dads, essentially. I've kind of decided to frame the show as if it's fiction. Isn't this just, like, upsetting everybody all over again? Like, it's, you know, it's not very nice. I think God does move in mysterious ways. There are things that are in some ways beyond our understanding, I think, and are nevertheless true. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. It's too much for one person to puzzle out by himself. I don't have answers. I don't know.